Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever divorces a whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise this morning, Lord, for our worship today. Lord, we thank you for uh, calling us out of our beds and out of slumber and into worship with the gathered body here. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching we've heard already this morning in Sunday school, Lord. We thank you for, Lord, the worship that we've had through liturgy and through song and confession, Lord God. And we pray, Father, that as we now turn our attention to your word, Lord, to discussing your scripture, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to believe and to understand what you have inspired. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, I think, I think, right, I'm, I'm assuming here, but I'm assuming that we would all agree that our actions in life matter, right? Right, right. It's very important, and I say this obviously slightly joking, but it's very important that you choose not to violently assault that rude person in the grocery store, right? You come, you come across a, gr- a person in a grocery store that takes up the whole aisle and you just want to yank their cart out of the way, right, because they're just in the way, right? It's, it's a good thing that you don't do that, right? So our actions obviously matter, right? But at the same time, if, if our motives behind our actions, if the heart and the intention behind our actions are ungodly, then our actions in life matter very little. 
And I really think that's Jesus' point through the majority of Matthew 5. So as we noted last week in verses 13 through 20, so salt and light and exceeding righteousness, Jesus, we see here that Jesus intends for this law of the kingdom of heaven to shape our motives, to shape the intentions of our hearts, and not only our actions. It does intend to shape our actions, but through right motives. And so this is how we are to be salt and light in the world. Right? This is how we are identified in Christ Jesus. If our actions are not coming from a heart that is concerned about the kingdom of heaven righteousness, then they are only concerned about self-centered righteousness and self-centered promotion. And so in each of the commands that we see here in this big chunk of text from the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is he references particular actions that are specifically decreed by the law, most specifically even the Ten Commandments. But then Jesus turns the tables. He, and he considers sinful motives behind how we respond to these actions that are commanded in the law before then offering kingdom of heaven motives and kingdom of heaven actions as a right response. And so kingdom of heaven motives lead, kingdom of heaven, lead to kingdom of heaven actions because what they do is that they come from a heart that has been called by Christ, that has repented of sin, and that is now being conformed to the image of Christ. And so here, as we continue to think through this theme of identity in Christ, let's just notice the way in which Jesus refocuses the motives of our hearts in, the, in this text and how he calls us to kingdom of heaven actions that are born out of righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And so like last week, what I want to do is I actually want to confuse you all and start at the very end again. <laughs> so if you go to the bottom of the text in your bulletin and go up about six or seven lines, this is where we're going to start. We're going to start with a section on oaths. Because what Jesus does in this section, I think, is, is he again draws attention to this idea of authority in this text. We looked at this a little bit last week. Except this time what he does in this text is that he actually reminds us not only who has true authority, but also who does not have authority. And so he says this in verse 33. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And so we'll stop there. We'll finish the rest of the section in a minute. But again, last week in verse 18 of Matthew 5, Jesus, he fought, we saw that he follows the same pattern of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament where God swears by himself because he has nothing and no one greater by whom to swear. Right? He does this with Abraham after Abraham almost offers Isaac as a sacrifice. God reconfirms his covenant with, with Abraham. And so what we saw there last week is that Jesus displays the same authority of God by using this phrase throughout the entirety of the sermon of saying, but I say to you, essentially saying the same thing. I swear by myself, here is the truth. And so then what he's doing here, again, is, is stressing this authority. And he does it throughout the majority, especially of chapter 5. But based upon this authority, what Jesus then does here at the end is direct our attention toward an issue that as fallen humanity, we really have a major issue with this. And this is basically the issue of minding our speech. We have a problem with how we use our tongues. Right? And multiple passages of Scripture bear witness to this. Right? So let's just do a ginormous little follow the bouncing ball through Scripture real quick. So in Proverbs 15, Solomon writes this. He says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Jesus, in Matthew 15, so now we're jumping all the way to the New Testament, 
Later in Matthew 15, Jesus would say this. He said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And this is why. He says, for what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. From out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. All of these things he addresses in our text today. And so James, going even further in the New Testament, James would write something similar. He said, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And this person's religion is worthless because the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, which is set on fire by hell. So to put this simply, our tongues, our mouths, our speech, more often than not is really the root of all kinds of woe in our lives, right? It would be best if we would learn how to just shut our mouths sometimes. <laughs> but here's another aspect of our tongues and our speech. How we use our speech is a way in which we are the salt of the earth. So remember, again, one of the many uses of salt is to enhance food and to add flavor to food. So in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. In Ephesians 4, 29, he tells the church in Ephesus, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to all those who hear. And so taking this aspect then, notice what Jesus does in this section. As he addresses the command from the law, again, you have heard that it was said, and then what he does is he reevaluates the motives of our hearts and our actions based upon righteousness that inherits the kingdom of heaven. So again, he says, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, basically saying again, I swear by myself, and I do this because I have the authority to do it. I say to you, you do not have the authority to do this. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So to swear by heaven is to invoke the very throne of God itself. From where Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thrones are symbolic of authority. And the throne of God represents the authority of God, over which we have no authority. So do not make an oath by heaven. But also, continuing on, the care of the earth, while it falls under our dominion, it is not under our authority. And there is a difference. Because in Psalm 24, we read this, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. That means us. For God has founded it upon the seas, and he has established it upon the rivers. The earth belongs to Yahweh, and because it belongs to him, it is his footstool, not our pedestal. So don't make an oath by it. To swear by Jerusalem is to assume authority over and above that of the king of the city, who is God. And so finally, what Jesus says here in this text is he reminds us that we are not to even swear by our own heads, because even over our own heads, God has authority. We have no natural ability right? Taking hair dye out of the equation, right? We have no natural ability to turn our hair white or black. 
God is sovereign over all things, including the very color of our hair. We are not. And so Jesus' point here, and we could go into detail about how the Pharisees are constantly, like, meticulously saying, well, if you swear like this, then you're not breaking the oath and you're not breaking the law. We could go into that, but that would take way too much time because that's not the point. I mean, it is the point, but it's not the main point. Because the point here that I want to draw out today is that disciples of the kingdom of heaven who are identified in Christ are to be aware of how we use our speech. Because we have no authority over anything by which we would even swear an oath to begin with. To swear by anything is an attempt on ourselves to supersede God's authority in our hearts. And that which would then turn our worship inwards towards ourselves rather than outwards towards the Father who is in heaven. Because remember, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, so that they may see your kingdom of heaven righteousness and give glory to the Father who is in heaven, not to you. So instead, Jesus reminds us here that our only option here in verse 37 to finish this out, our only option then as kingdom of heaven disciples is to present a simple yes or no to all things, right? This is kingdom of heaven righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees because kingdom disciples understand where our true authority rests. It rests in the Father. It rests in the Son. It rests in the influence of the Spirit in our lives. And so because we understand where true authority rests, we guard our speech. And we allow a simple yes or no to suffice for all things. And so then with this authority in mind, let's double back to the beginning. Right? If we have no authority over anything other than what Christ gives us, then we need to take in mind what he tells us about everything else in life. So doubling back to the beginning, he says this in the first two verses. He says, so if you, you have heard that it was said to those of old, so again, referencing the law, You have heard of it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we'll stop there. Again, we'll finish this section as we go. So like oaths, Jesus is again, he's looking beyond the command itself to consider the motives of the heart that drives the sinful action of murder. So a heart that hates and a heart that is angry and a heart that is condescending and insulting towards a fellow human being is just as heinous as the act of murder itself. Because it shows that our heart's desire is for the destruction of a fellow image bearer of God. And so Jesus equates these two by the language that he uses here in these first two verses. He, he begins by quoting, again, the law of Moses, the law which forbids murder. You shall not murder. Reminding us that murderers do indeed face judgment, both in court and before God. And so, taking the murder rate out of our major cities at the moment, murder is supposed to be rare, right? Uh, we understand in a, in a fallen world that this heinous sin happens. It's supposed to be rare. It's supposed to not happen at all but we live in a sinful, broken world. Murder is rare, but anger is common. It's very common. And both G- but Jesus uh, states that both will be liable to judgment. And so he says murder and the heart nature behind murder are both just as equally as guilty as if they were to commit homicide regardless. And so here is where, though, frankly, I don't know about you, but I know me, 
you, get, you read this and you get a little uncomfortable, right? And I mean, we're supposed to be a little uncomfortable with this because who in the room has never been angry with someone else? <laughs> or who has never had an insulting thought enter their mind about a fellow image bearer of God? I think we all probably have. And so Jesus then doesn't stop at simple anger here in these first two verses. He, he goes on and he presents, he prohibits contempt and he prohibits disdain and hate and scorn within the heart of a kingdom disciple. Because these are motives of the heart that leads to a desire of the heart to destroy, to murder a fellow image bearer of God. And we see this with two really interesting words that Jesus uses in verse 22. And actually, it also points back to this section on oaths and reminding ourselves of being cautious of our speech. So in, the, in, our, in our bulletin here, in our text, he says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These two terms are really neat in the Greek. He uses the term raka and moros. In the Greek, raka expresses contempt for the mind. So it can mean something like brainless or idiot. Whereas moros sounds kind of familiar to a word that we use in English, which expresses contempt for the heart, but our English, this is where we get our English word moron, right? This is calling somebody a moron or a fool, which is what we have in the ESV. So taking these two words and their definitions into account, consider the motives of the heart behind these insults that Jesus is addressing, right? So raka insults someone's intelligence, it insults the way that they perceive themselves and the world. It may even present, uh, insult the way they possibly understand Christ and the gospel. But Moros goes even deeper, not only insulting the mind, but it insults the heart. It insults a person to their core. And when we use these kinds of insults, we are stating that our hearts believe that a fellow image bearer of God is not just an idiot, but a worthless idiot. And this is as good as murder in the eyes of God. And interestingly, cultural context of these statements, if you were to hear this when Jesus was originally presenting it, we would almost understand it slightly differently, not in a, not in a way that negates what we just said, but, but in a slightly different way. So in the context, these could be equivalent to calling someone morally apostate or rebellious or even wicked. And so... I think the lesson to take from this is while we should rightly condemn all forms of sin, we should rightly condemn false teaching and heresy and a lifestyle of unrepentance, this should also serve as a warning for us as disciples of the kingdom of heaven in how we condemn heresy and unrepentance and sin and wickedness. We are to rightly condemn, but we need to condemn rightly. And we're all very quick sometimes, I think, to say, that person's a heretic. <laughs> I know I've done it before. And his point is not that various forms of contempt result in various forms of punishment. Instead, he says every kind of disdain for another image bearer of God is a form of murder. And that's a hard truth to swallow. But then he doesn't stop. He goes on in the rest of this text on anger and presents us with what seems like an impossible task. Because he says these heart motives should also do this. He goes on, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
And then he also says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest he hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. So not only are we to be aware of our own heart motives when it comes to anger, but Jesus tells us that we are to also be aware of anger from others, whether that is a fellow disciple or an accuser. So what he does then is he builds upon that state, those statements of verses 21 and 22, and he tells us that while we are to refrain from murder and anger and contempt, we should also be salt and light in such a way as to prevent those same motives within the hearts of others as they are directed towards us. That seems like an impossible task, but this is a righteousness that inherits the kingdom of heaven. And so as it relates to a fellow disciple, Jesus doesn't state whether or not they are rightly or wrongly offended. That doesn't matter. They may have taken offense over something that we would assume is trivial and meaningless. But that's not Jesus' point. He says if we are aware of an offense that a fellow believer has against us, whether rightly or wrongly, then we must be the one to seek reconciliation. And this is because the presence of anger and contempt and hate within the church is a cancer, and it is a destructive cancer, and reconciliation is of paramount importance for the believer. And so honestly, as I understand it, this is just my assumption, and I can be corrected on this, but my assumption is that this is part of the reason and the motive behind why we pass the peace before we come to the table. may not be the whole reason, but that is definitely part of the reason, because what we do as we come, if your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. We are coming and presenting ourselves upon the altar of Christ's death and resurrection as a gift to God to do with as he pleases with our lives. So before we ever come forward and kneel and take the bread and the wine, we are to make peace in Christ with one another, regardless of who is right and who is wrong. We are to make peace and then come and make thanks. And then in the final scenario in verses 25 and 26, it's probably the most challenging for us when it comes to this aspect of this command of preventing anger in the hearts of others. Because now Jesus commands to seek reconciliation, not just with a brother or sister in Christ, but with someone who accuses us, an adversary, an enemy. And very frustratingly, like before, he again ignores the point of whether or not they are rightly or wrongly Offended. The clash itself, the battle itself is Jesus' concern here. And more profoundly, Jesus tells us as his disciples to lay aside our pride and our wrath and to make peace. So this is how we are conformed into the image of Christ. This is how we are identified in Christ. This is how, as salt, we not only preserve the earth, but we flavor it with the savory truth of the gospel. We go before our enemies and make peace before they take us to the judge. And then, just continuing on, if anger and contempt weren't uncomfortable for us enough, we come to these ugly and very uncomfortable topics of lust and divorce. Most of our Bibles split these sections in two, but I think it's best to consider them together, which is why I'm glad we have it as just one big paragraph in our bulletin. Because more often than not, especially with lust and divorce, and I'm not saying that anger doesn't lead into these things as well because it absolutely does, but more often than not, lust leads to divorce. 
doesn't say it always does, but it does a lot of times. So beginning with lust, let's look at them and then see how they work together. Beginning with lust, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so Jesus begins here, right? He directly forbids adultery. Because adultery is a violent violation of the marriage covenant between God and a husband and a wife. It's not passive. It's intentionally violent. And as scripture constantly shows us, God does not take the violation of his covenants lightly. Adultery is born out of and contributes to many other forms of sin. And so Jesus uses this phrase here. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, which we could easily translate to an even more uncomfortable term of leering. right? So stressing that a lustful heart has a motive of a longing gaze at someone or a studying gaze or gawking at them or staring at them with a desire to possess them sexually. This is what lust is. And lust can occur in multiple ways, right? Now, this is not the point of where this message is going, but let's be honest. In our time and era and with our current technology, the internet has brought lust into our pockets and into our homes in a way that has never been the case before in human history, right? Right? Never before in the history of mankind has there been a better example of looking with lustful desire to possess than the invention of the smart devices. But there's a lot more going on here than just leering, longing, lustful looks. So the Greek also lends itself in such a way that we could translate this a different way. We could translate it as everyone who looks at a woman so that she lusts. Now here again, we see it turned around the other direction, like with coming to peace with someone that is angry with us. But we can also see how this lends itself to understanding how lust and divorce are connected. So similar to how we are to be aware of working to prevent anger in someone else, we are also to be aware to not provoke lust in one another. We are to act in such a we are not to act in such a way that leads others to think about committing adultery. And then Jesus goes on and he presents us some really hard sayings even more so. He says he does not simply say to avoid lust, right? And so as a believer in Christ, we understand that just saying avoid lust is pretty much a no-brainer, right? Obviously, we should avoid lust. We've been called to be holy as God is holy. So Jesus goes on, and he gets even more intense, and he says this. Here's what, how we are to treat lust. Rip out your lustful eyes. Cut off your grasping hand, because it is better to be maimed and bound for heaven than whole and bound for hell. That's what he's saying. Or to put it in a way that our sex-crazed culture would despise, it is this. It is better to suffer now than to suffer for eternity. That is completely antithetical to our culture. Disciples of Christ should recoil at the thought of sexual sin just as violently as we recoil at the thought of cutting off our own limbs. Now, historically, and most of us that have studied any little bit of church history understand that 
These outrageous commands, these seemingly outrageous commands, have led many throughout history to mutilate themselves. Right? We even see Jesus referencing this about making themselves eunuchs. Right? But they mutilate themselves in order to avoid lustful actions. But again, notice that literal physical mutilation will not conquer the motives of a sinful heart. You can cut your hands off all day long. Well, you, you can do it once, and you've got to get somebody else to help you. Right? You can gouge your eyes out until you know they're both gone. But if your heart is still inclined towards sin, you are still going to sin. One commentator even notes here that we could rightly translate and understand this warning as a warning against falling away. Meaning that these particular sins of this type of sexual nature could easily lead someone to turning completely away from God. Now sadly, and we hear this more now because we have you know, the advent of devices to be able to see the news all the time, but we know that this has been the case in recent years, even in the church and among pastors and other clergy. But the eye, our eyes, are the members of our body that really lead our hands into sin, right? We see something and we grasp for it. This is Jesus' point. But all sin is born of a fallen motive in the heart. Right? In Numbers 15, God commands the people to remember his commands, and he says, I want you to remember them and to do them not following after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined to lead you into sin. So cutting off a hand or gouging out our eyes is Jesus' very dramatic and drastic way of getting our attention to tell us that disciples must radically deal both with sin and the motives of the heart that lead to sin. And while we all respond differently to certain sins, right? We all have our besetting sins that, that the enemy always comes at us with. Jesus' point here is that we are to remove the offending object that leads to sin. Otherwise, the alternative is the reward for sin, which is death and hell itself. And so with those sinful motives, then we see, again, how lust and divorce are connected, which is why Jesus then follows it up. And he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So sadly, like today, divorce was very common in Jesus' time. So much so that many rabbis and scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time, by permitting it for any reason, really encouraged divorce for any reason. So they would use, um, these are silly illustrations, but but they actually... Bear out. So excuses like, okay, well, you don't like your wife, well, then divorce her, right? You don't like her, just get rid of her, right? Is is she barren? You know what? You don't have to deal with that, right? You only live once, divorce your wife. Is she too old now? Well, man, trade her in, right? Just divorce her. I mean, these these are bad excuses. This is my favorite one, though. And actually, I made this one up. Uh, Does your mother's, does, does her mother's cooking not agree with your tummy, right? Well, then just divorce her, right? It's a silly illustration, but, uh, a lot of cooking doesn't agree with me. But the point is, divorce her, right? That, th- these are ridiculous reasons, but these were ridiculous reasons that are used for divorce. And so here Jesus, what he does is he offers only one condition for divorce, and that is sexual immorality. Now we know in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds to this, and it being in the inspired word of God, we know that desertion is also a reasonable exception. But here is how lust and divorce are connected. 
I know I'm going to the Greek a lot today, but this is really helpful. In the Greek, the term that Jesus uses for sexual immorality in divorce is the word porneia. And we all recognize that word, right? It's where we get our term pornography. It's no accident that lustful, leering, gawking gazes born from a sinful sexual desire in our heart leads to countless unjust and abusive divorces in our culture. In the Greek, the term porneia covers every sexual intimacy sin outside of the covenant of marriage. Everything. Adultery justifies divorce because it is a violent violation of the marriage covenant. And sadly, as Jesus notes here, unjust divorce leads to other sins. The man who casually divorces his wife leads his wife into adultery because she is still his wife if she is divorced unjustly. Further, when someone remarries without a proper divorce, that new union is also sinful. Again, we can see how we are responsible because of the intent of our hearts for the actions of others. We should seek to make peace and to keep these things from happening. And so these reactions to dealing with sin, so ripping out our eyeballs or cutting off a hand or us being responsible for the actions and responses of others, whether that be their responses to anger or poor speech or lust or adultery or divorce, these reactions seem very extreme to us, particularly to sins that our culture has long been working to desensitize us to. But this is why it is so vital For the believer to lay hold of our identity in Christ Jesus. Because the ultimate expression of identification for the Christian is Christ, not our sin. We don't identify ourselves by the sins that we enjoy to commit. And this is why it is also so vital to grasp what Jesus is calling us to when he calls us to repentance. For the believer, everything has been forgiven in Christ. And now that you are forgiven, you are to lean into the righteousness of Jesus, which is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And it is a righteousness that inherits the kingdom of heaven. So lean into your identity in Christ. But for the non-Christian, that call to repentance is the exact same. And this is a thing that the world, especially unrepentant people that aren't believers in Christ, hate. Whether or not you like it, God's morality and ethics apply to all of humanity because God is sovereign over his creation. But there is no freedom from any sin outside of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it is here. So repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel that proclaims that Christ has died and that Christ has risen. And as Paul says, for we have all been called to freedom in Christ... And if Christ has set us free, then we are free indeed. So repent and believe the gospel. Amen.